loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Dawn Newton. Dawn's the author of Winded, a memoir in four stages, which details her journey with stage four lung cancer and the soon-to-be-released novel, The Remnants of Summer. She trained as a fiction writer and received scholarships to attend Michigan State University and John Hopkins University. Dawn's taught composition and creative writing at several colleges and in K-12 classrooms in Virginia and Michigan. Her essays, poems, and short stories have been published in various literary magazines. She has three grown children, Rachel, Connor, and Nathaniel, and lives with her husband, Tim Dalton, and their dog, Clover, in East Lansing, Michigan. Welcome, Dawn. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. I've just, I've just, of course, read your two books, and so we have so much to talk about. Yes, <laughs> but um, uh, let's start with a little bit of your story, if that's all right, as a person. I know that you're about to come out with your novel, and I want to talk about that for sure and, and uh, let people know about it and share some readings from it. But I think it's so... Uh, so on target with this show that you actually published your first novel, your first two books after, after diagnosis, you know, and I have a feeling there's connection in there. So can you talk about when you were diagnosed with lung cancer and kind of what that initial experience was like for you? Sure. Um, I was diagnosed in um, 2012 um, in, on, on Halloween, actually, in, in 2012, I um, underwent surgery, and what, what had happened was I'd had some unusual sensations in my lungs. I'd gone um, to emergency to find out what was causing them. Eventually, they um, determined through an echo that there's all kinds of fluid building up, and um, and so they did a, a procedure, uh, left thoracotomy and um, uh, pericardial window, that's the name of it. And um, at the time, um, I didn't get the cancer information just then. I actually got it um, a few weeks later, but it turned out that I had lung cancer and it was stage four, pretty, pretty serious. Which is not unusual in my experience of lung cancer that you might, you know, by the time there are symptoms, it can be pretty serious. Uh, that's exactly that's exactly what I have learned um, over the course of having this. You know, people get surprised that you that you have it if you're a non-smoker. They they don't understand how it can be so bad so fast, but. I think the, the really wily thing about lung cancer is it really finds ways to live in your body and hide itself so that you don't even really notice the effects that much. 
Absolutely. Or you do and they can't figure it out like it was with my with my wife. It took them a year and a half to figure it out. Um, by virtue of racism, black people with, with back pain don't get x-rays. Oh, wow. I hope that's changing, but that's what happened at the time. A doctor admitted that to her. I always like to get that story out. Oh, um, my. That is really, really, oh, Shocking, but (laughs) yeah, me too. (laughs) Would it have made a difference? I don't know, but she sure had a miserable year and a half not knowing and her back was broken. So your your memoir certainly brought the period of time, uh, those 10 years she was ill, so vividly to my mind because uh, you're an outlier. She was an outlier you know, not expected to live so long. And that's a particular experience. I don't know if there's any other experience quite like that. Uh, and I, I noticed in the book how at a certain point it's very confusing, you know, because you can't, are you supposed to plan to die or plan to make I enough could. money to live or, you know, what are you supposed to do? Yes, I, I, I couldn't. I tell from the book, I never liked to, um, well, when I was much younger, I always made the assumption that everything in a, in a, in a novel was reflective of the writer's life, which, um, of course, I, I, I did that when I was much younger, but I still have that tendency. So, when I read your, where, your book, many of the times I was like, oh, I wonder I wonder if if this really happened or if this story belongs <laughs> to the character, you know? Yes. But, but to hear you say now that it was 10 years, so she was an outlier. Absolutely. Like yeah, she was, she was actually at the time expected to live six months uh, to a year maybe. And she lived beyond that diagnosis eight and a half years. Oh, that- so. Yeah, and and it it gives you a lot of time to to kind of grapple with what's happening, doesn't it? In good in in good and challenging ways. In in both good and bad ways. Yes, I I told my sister that that one of the the essays that I still want to write is um, the uh, lists for living and dying because you do make both lists, you know, as you probably know well, okay, I'm going to set goals for myself for for two years or for five years. But meanwhile, we need to get the will in order. We need to do this. I need to to make sure that this kid knows this or this kid is settled in in how they're thinking about this. And um, I think it's exhausting doing those mm. lists for being and dying. <laughs> for everyone, because everyone is relating to that. Uh, you know, when you, when you described going to Paris with your family, I was remembering so many trips that were the background of the trip was, is this the last time? Is this the last time? <laughs> you know, yes. <laughs> uh, it's just, you can't completely, it's like a separate track going on all the time, isn't it? It is. It is. And you, and you try really hard to, to shut it out or to find ways to make it not so um, obnoxious, but it's hard. <laughs> but then in the midst of that, uh, you write this novel, and I know you'd written drafts of novels before, but somewhere in the memoir, you said, um, 
something like, this is going to be a, a terrible paraphrase, but something like, oh, no, I'm going to die without having published my novel. <laughs> you know, yes. kind of those those things you want to get done in your life that are not done and, and realizing you may not have time to, but you did it. And I was very interested that you chose to write the, the story that came to you to write was a grief story. Uh, and I don't know if you already had that story in your head before the diagnosis or it came since, but it reminded me of when my wife was sick and I suddenly started reading mystery novels and I'd never read them before. I haven't since either, by the way, but there was something about confronting death over and over again, you know, in a mystery, there's always someone's died, right? Yes, that's, <laughs> it, that's a really interesting point. Uh, it took me a long time to figure out that was the, what was happening. But, you know, how did you come to decide to write a novel uh, that was so, um, that was so constructed around grief? Um, the, there's there's actually multiple ways to answer that and i and i found that i i i will answer it one way and then i think but you forgot about this thing so i'll try, i'll try and address <laughs> we have a whole it. hour you may be able to tell me all the ways <laughs> um, the key thing i think is that when when i um got out of graduate school i um i was trying to be a writer but i also knew that um it's you know, the, the story is don't quit your day job. And so I was teaching uh, at a university and I'd completed a collection of short stories and was sending that around to people. And I, I landed an agent and I was excited and we tried to sell the collection of short stories, but there wasn't a lot of traction. And she suggested that I write a novel. And so I started writing this novel that was set in my... Um, in my home state of Michigan at the time I was living in Virginia. And I knew that I wanted it to be about my family somehow, even if all the characters weren't the same. And I wanted it to be about living in the neighborhood that I lived in. And I wanted it to kind of celebrate that life, but also kind of track the, the, the way darkness comes into your life when you're an adolescent and you realize that the world has some sad things in it. Mm. So, so I kind of had that idea and I was working on it and um, I was expecting a baby. My husband and I moved back to Michigan. Uh, we're back in Michigan. I'm still working on it, but I'm focused more on mothering, doing my day job. And then my, parents died um, 36 days apart in 1993. Mm -hmm. And they died of unrelated, um, unrelated causes, although they both had maladies, they were divorced, although they they still got along. Um, and I was completely devastated. I was completely devastated. And um, it took me a long time to climb out of my grief and depression. And um, when I did, I thought, okay, I, I have to finish this novel and it needs to somehow capture this grief, um, this incredible sadness. Um, and so I thought, okay, 
if, if I keep the family number the same, a family of five, then um, my younger sister needs to be a brother. Um, and, and so then, as you know, when you write a novel, um, no matter how much you're infusing of your own life, um, the characters become different people. And so I gave my grief to Iris, my main character, and I created this, this younger brother who was going to be the vehicle of, of loss. And the other part of that story, and I, I'm not exactly sure how they all tie together, is that uh, we had a neighbor here in Michigan, and um, uh, that neighbor had a sister who had a son, and in Michigan, like I'm sure in California, uh, the, the big lakes are, are really frightening sometimes with their waves, and the son was, was young, and he went off with some friends, uh, a family, so that there were adults present, but at the end of the day, he was gone, he drowned, and I remember so vividly and this is right around the time that, that my parents had died, standing in the driveway, having my neighbor tell me this sad story about her nephew and thinking, how did the parents feel? Because you always want to protect your kid and you never know what's going to happen. And, and what would that guilt be like? Even if, you, even if you knew that you shouldn't have the guilt what would it feel like? It's so illogical that guilt part, isn't it? I, it I, is. I, I, I feel there are all these parts of grief we don't talk about. Guilt is a big one. <laughs> Maybe we can give people a little sense of the book if you can read a little bit from the beginning of um, uh, it's the it's the part where um, Iris realizes that she can't find her brother and and goes home looking for him. Okay. As Iris reached her house and walked up the long, narrow driveway, her mother, home from her job at the library, called out the kitchen window for her to set the table. Iris went first to the backyard to hang her beach towel on the clothesline. A warm flush spread across her chest when she saw the straight lines strung between the two poles, unadorned with clothespins or sagging cotton. Scott's worn towel with the big green frog and the letters spelling your pad or mine was missing. And then she realized that when she'd surveyed the beach to look for him, she'd seen a stray towel, not next to hers as it had been in the beginning, but thrown over a bench, a worn towel with a large splotch of green. She could barely make her legs walk into the back of the house, afraid to face her mother, afraid to confess she'd lost track of her 11-year-old brother. She went inside and entered the bathroom, lathering her hands with soap to wash off the suntan lotion in the sand. She opened the kitchen cupboard and took down a stack of five plates, which she carried to the dining room and placed on the table. She took a deep breath and went to find her mother. I could, you know, that... That scene, of course, a 14-year-old would not keep their eye on an 11-year-old the whole day. 
<laughs> it would be perfectly natural that he'd go play with his friends and she'd sit on the beach and be there just in case, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and yet everyone was going to make themselves guilty in some way, which maybe is easier to grapple with than it's no one's fault. It just happens. Yes, I think um, I think it, it, it is. It is really hard to to sort of separate that out. And, and you want to punish yourself. And, um, you know, logistically, she was technically in charge when her mother was at work. And so um, there's no way for her to refuse that guilt, at least at the outset. You know, I, I'm aware that throughout the book, what I was thinking, and of course, this is true of my novel too, uh, nothing really moves between people when they don't talk about things. Uh, it seemed to me like the points of movement where things went, lurched forward, had to do with communication. Do, do you think so? I totally agree. And it and and um, I, I really like that word communication because I, I did, um, and I don't know when I did it over the years, I did really view this novel as being about communication and a lack of communication and, and also for an adolescent figuring out when you communicate and when you don't communicate. Yes, you know? <laughs> such a painful time to be faced with that dilemma. You know, 14, I think of like the 11 to 14 age is so excruciatingly um, self-conscious in some way. Yes, self-conscious and, and um, doubting. And um, I mean, there, there are some kids who who have more of a natural confidence than others. But I think so many kids are just, um, they've got themselves under a microscope constantly wondering if, if the slide looks good or looks bad, you know? Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So actually, the original uh, heart of, of your novel actually came out of your grief for your parents. Yes. It and, sounds, it sounds like. And, and, and one of the things that happened with my parents was that um, my father was uh, not doing well. He had multiple sclerosis and he'd been on a, a downward trajectory. They have much better drugs now than they used to. And he was in a nursing home. He was kind of on his uh, his way out in some ways. But my mother was still working, um, and uh, she was a year younger than he was, and and had a, a heart attack at work. And while she was dealing with recuperation over this long two month period, uh, my father died, and then they wanted to send her. Uh, off to uh, a nursing home for recuperation, and uh, and then she got a last minute offer for a heart catheterization, and I wasn't there when that happened, and I was working, and mm-hmm. I was two hours away, and once we we were nervous that she was being sent off to a nursing home, but 
once she died, I had incredible guilt that I had not left work, driven the two hours down to the hospital and said, you need to do this, mom, you need to do this. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't there to try to persuade her differently. Which but that was I, my guilt. <laughs> I, if I transpose myself into your situation, I don't think I could have convinced my mother, but... <laughs> And, you know, that could be true. Um, although my mother was amiable most of the time. So. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I guess it just points out so many, so many, so many times with clients and with radio guests, there's been that, that focus of regret that's hard to walk past. And even if you know all the logic of it, Right. And, and it sounds as if that's where your regret focused on just that one aspect of could you have talked her into doing the procedure? Yeah. Um, and, and it, um, you know, my older sister was really good at handling those things. She was closer and she had talked to her. She had tried to persuade her. And so even within that, that she had been talked to. Let's come had- back to that after the break, because you know, that shows how kind of illogical our guilt is, doesn't it? Yes. (laughs) She'd been pushed about it and she made a different decision. Exactly. We'll be back in a few minutes. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Also a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them, that we've referred to a little bit today. Um, You can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And to find Dawn Newton, you can go to dawnmarienewton.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. 
To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Don Newton about her two books, Winded, a memoir in four stages, and The Remnants of Summer, a memoir and a novel. And before the break, Dawn, we were talking about guilt, which uh, is is almost a almost a universal subject. I have to say that when my wife died, I did not fe- I did not experience guilt, and I think it was because we had talked through guilt so much in the decade, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, we, we, I'd already been there and done that in a way. Uh, and because I was able, which I really am grateful for, to do everything, because she'd outlived her prognosis by so much, I was able to do everything to be there for her in the process of her death. Um, I'm I'm saying that because I want to put out the message that it's not inevitable. It's just incredibly common to experience grief and I mean guilt. And of course, I don't know exactly why I didn't have that experience, but I do think it has to do with that aspect of kind of grappling with it in advance. I I, I think. I think you're right because, um, well, I don't know for me. I mean, I, I think I, I can go to a lot of places that uh, I shouldn't go and I can go there quickly. And so, so guilt's been a frequent visitor to, to my, my psyche and my life. But in, in your situation, um, if it's even partially reflected in your novel, I felt like the, there were so many processes of um, of meeting others, meeting the grief of others, meeting the needs of others, not in a confrontational way, but in a more matter-of-fact way. You know, we have to deal with this. Even the, the characters um, who uh, want to, the two main characters who want to be able to, to joke, the, the, the dark deaths uh the the dark jokes that you make when you're you're anticipating death and love gallows humor <laughs> yes yes thank you for that phrase <laughs> so i think that um i think that by working through some of that you you do you're able to let go of some of the guilt um i know my my kids have had quite a journey because um the youngest of them was was not even out of middle school when I was um, diagnosed. And um, he, this summer, said something that was poignant, but it was a, a joke too, because my, my, my line is always, I, I need my dog to outlive me because she was brought into the family after I was diagnosed. And I say that she is going to become me when I'm gone, or I'm going to become her or, or whatever. And my son said this summer, while we're all locked down with COVID, he said, Mom, I think, I think maybe one of the things you need to start thinking about is, is whether or not you could outlive Clover. And he said <laughs> uh-huh. it as a joke. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> but it's true. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, oh, oh no, I, I just don't know if I can go there. And, um, but what he was getting at was so key. It was like, you know, we do, you did live a long time and the dog is eight years old now. And, and, and we do have to be a little bit open-minded about how we look at this. And I thought that was such a wise thing to say, um, even though he knew that I would, I would have a reaction to it. Well, you know, the thing, the thing that I wonder about whether you've experienced as well is that in that period of time, that decade where uh, she was sick, um, we actually came to terms with not knowing what was going to happen. Once she didn't die at six months, once she didn't die at a year, and no one could explain really why she didn't, you know, she was supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> once she didn't, we knew we didn't know what was going to happen. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Even, do- even the doctors had to admit they didn't know. And I'll tell you, many, many, many of our friends died uh, who were not sick when she was diagnosed before she died. You know, we, we truly don't know. Yes. And, and I feel as if there's a way that your son's referring to that, just that that's the, those are the absolute facts. Yes. I think that um, one of the dicey things about this situation is um, you want that ground of knowing and, and you want to be able to plant yourself somewhere and, um, and you, when you find out that you, you just can't know it, you have to go back to the, the original stuff of, uh, not stuff, that's not a good word, but the thing that none of us really know when we're going to die. Um, sometimes I rail against that, though, because I feel like it, it puts us all back in this category because once you've had the death sentence, I feel that you don't get to live with the kind of um, extreme openness that you might if you didn't have the death sentence. So um, I have closed down on things like um, talking about having grandchildren um, I also, I notice that I'm, I'm happy for people when they retire, but I never really got to think about retirement, nor did my parents. And I think that's one of the chips on my shoulder that I, that I try and get rid of. And, and I do think that that is a difference between, between realizing that somebody could get killed in a car crash tomorrow and, and having having this death sentence where you know that there's there's going to be an end eventually, um, but you don't know what the time is. And I don't know. Yes. Yeah. She she used to say she's really very present with me today, probably because of that long term uh, aspect of your experience. I I'm imagining, but she used to say everyone's going to be hit by a truck, but I'm so close I can see the dent in the fender. Um, that there was some different thing. Uh, yes, theoretically, everyone's going to die, but her experience was very different. And um, 
I love that line. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty good. When she said it, it, it so communicated what I was observing in her, but at a very visceral level, right? But yeah. it, it reminds me of a place in your memoir where you said that um, your, your life insurance policy ended in 2020. What if you outlived it and the plan you'd made about, you know, it goes that direction too. What if you yeah. live, live longer, right? And, and these kind of plans you made for your death, I mean, we do whatever plan we make, we we have an attachment to it one way or another. Yeah, ex- exactly. And and it goes back to the lists for living and dying. It's like what I already I already had that on a list. I already thought I dealt with it. Now you're telling me I'm gonna have to deal with it again. You know, how much brain energy do I have to deal with <laughs> absolutely know, possibilities? And I do think that we're still talking along the edges about guilt and I, I I'd like to have you share a little more of your novel that relates to guilt because if we did it, we have some control. If if it's random, we don't. You know. (laughs) So I think they're I think they're uh, these two subjects are quite connected. Could you share um, the part about Iris and her sister Liz going shopping? Sure. Um, Thank you. Thank you for that. Years later, Iris would understand what her sister was really trying to say. Liz wanted to blame Iris for the mix-up because she knew deep down that if something happened to Iris, she would be at fault. And that was the dilemma because when something horrible happened, there needed to be a reason why, a person at fault. Circumstance didn't have a clear enough face, no eyes into which an accuser could stare. A single individual needed to bear the blame. Maybe it shouldn't be that way, but it was. And that individual wanted the Inquisition, needed to be brutalized by the accusers, made to feel shame. So she didn't have to listen to the voice inside that spoke in a needling, insistent way. Maybe if someone carted me away, you'd all feel like justice was done, Iris said. They were headed back to their car in the parking lot now. Oh, God, Liz said in disgust, but her taunt sounded faint because Iris had hurried ahead of her, striding through the lingerie department at Montgomery Wards, trying to keep the tears from sliding down her cheeks. You know, it just occurred to me that not one person in your novel, uh, and I'm sure there are families in which this is true, not one person is mad at him for trying to swim, swim across the lake. Which wasn't a wise idea, was it? (laughs) No. And um, I feel like Iris wants to be mad at him, but she, um, it sort of doesn't occur to her because she's so guilty herself. Now, I don't know why the others don't get angry at him. I think... I think part of it is when when you set up these things uh, like the the mom wants to go back to work. Part of the deal is, you know, they need to make sure things are taken care of in the household. The older sister works. Um, It's Iris's job 
to take care of her brother. Um, they should be mad at him, but he's not there. And maybe they feel like she does that they don't want to give him that. Um, they don't want to give him their anger because he's dead and he can't take it. And <laughs> which is ironic, isn't it? It's the yes. living people who, who suffer when we're angry at them. <laughs> yes. And the, and the frustrating thing is that nobody wants to express their anger. So they keep on doing these dances where they, where they, um, they taunt each other, but not directly. Um, at least Liz and Iris do a little bit. They taunt each other, but, but they, they don't discuss it openly. Yes, that's that's some of what I was talking about when I mentioned how how central communication was, because even the times where it peaks out um, more uh, evidently, I guess, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, where you could notice it, um, those are kind of breakthroughs in a way, but it, it's kind of like they only come when people can't hold it in anymore. Yeah, yeah, I think when they can't hold it in anymore. Yes. I I like I like your phrasing there because it's it's escaping or it's exploding or or something. Um I've I've mentioned on the show before that uh probably about a year ago, no, probably longer. It was before COVID. Um uh, I was with all my kids and just chatting away like I usually do. I'm very, you can probably tell, pretty open-mouthed in my communication style. And one of my kids said, Mom, you may not be aware that not everybody likes to talk about death as much as you do. <laughs> <laughs> and you're making me grateful that I'm like that. <laughs> Because there, there are things that are uncomfortable to say, but I do think it's of service to say them. You know, in the same way that your your son uh, just saying, you know, the dog could die first, mom. You know, just having it kind of out of the bag that way. I think it's so valuable. Well, I think I think it's valuable. I I sometimes want to protect the people who who are afraid, but. When I'm in in a mood where I just I want to talk about it, I don't want to be polite, and and I don't talk a lot, and I don't complain a lot, um, telling people the ins and outs of of my everyday. But I feel like I am doing it more because it's like, oh, I I have to live with this. Can I just talk about it a little bit? Well. Also, I noticed with Joanne, if we were in circumstances where our true reality uh, could not be expressed in some way, I mean, we weren't negative, but the truth was the truth, right? We would start feeling as if we were being disappeared. Yes. And, and that wasn't tolerable. You know, we, we kind of needed to be visible, not pitied or, you know, none of that but just visible with what was actually happening and the people who could just show up with that and not get dramatic about it, but, but listen and, and say, Oh God, that's, that's a drag. You know, <laughs> they were very valuable. Let's, yeah. let's, uh, 
let's come back to that a bit after this after the second break. Okay. And listeners, again, you can go to all of the various links on the Good Grief uh, page at Voice America. I also have a website, weatheringgrief.com. And to find Dawn Newton, you can go to dawnmarienewton.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Don Newton about her books, The Remnants of Summer and Winded, and also about her long-term living with, with uh, stage four lung cancer. And, um, you know, this, this, uh, this creative tension about how much to talk about it, how much not to talk about it, what, what helps us to not just um, feel overcome by the experience, but also have a chance to process it. I noticed in your memoir, you had several writer's retreats, and, and you were very clear to say that also that gave you some time to process. Uh, yes. And I could imagine that, that the two would kind of overlap or go together, that that there's a part about talking with other people and then there's the part that's about really being with ourselves in the ex- these experiences. Yeah. Um, I think the the writing residencies, uh, first of all, I, I would not have been able to do them if I hadn't had cancer. I would have um, stayed at my part-time job probably I would have mm. um, um, I, I wouldn't have had as much uh, time on the calendar um, when I went to them I was always like you know you sit down at a dinner table with people and cancer isn't the first thing that you bring up but those kind of artists residencies do lend themselves to emotional and psychological connections. So mm, sure. at some point, usually I would bring it up um, if, if people, you know, asked questions about what I was doing occupation-wise to make money. Um, but the time that I got was also 
really valuable because um, I could think about things myself. I, I didn't have my family around. I could process things. Um, and then because I didn't have my family around, when I interacted with other people, I could practice this, this idea of how much do I, do I want to share? What part of myself do I want to offer up here? Um, so they were good opportunities for, for practicing how to be in the world. And um, I, I liked what you said earlier about being able to talk about the, the cancer with, without the drama and um, how to be in the world and talk with strangers about cancer if, if you need to without the drama. I think that's uh, a skill that I, I really wanted to develop and I'm still developing. I feel that sort of um, ongoing, you know, my wife died 25 years ago. Oh. And very frequently uh, when I'm telling someone, which happens very frequently, right? <laughs> because of yeah. the work I do. Oh, how did you get into that? You know, so it's very common and people will respond as if I'm um, in a devastated place, as if, you know, whatever they imagine grief to be like has stayed the same for 25 years. Does that make sense? Yes. Which of course, which of course isn't my experience whatsoever. Um, are there sad parts? Are there sad memories? Sure. But there's a lot of other stuff too. And there's 25 years, <laughs> you know? So I think, I think that has to do with the culture and how we, how we perceive losses Um they're terrible. No one wants to talk about them. Um, nothing happens after it. It's just terrible. And then you pick up the pieces, kind of. Um, so I think I noticed that in that experience, too, having to figure out how to stay present and really say what's going on for me instead of what people might imagine. Does that, does that, uh, is that comparable a little bit? Yes, I think that's that's definitely comparable. And I think, um, you know, the, the staying present, whether whether it's a phrase that um, that we use in a sentence or whether it's sort of connected with mindfulness, which I'm really um, very fond of. Uh, I think it's it's an important concept. And, and one of the reasons I'm really fond of the mindfulness is um, I feel like I do go back to the gloom, um, not in a public place when I'm talking to people, but I do go back to the gloom sometimes of sure, of, sure, of course, of losing my parents, um, and and I think, um, yeah, you know, it, it's not that it's not that I want to be gloomy about the fact that my mother passed away, you know, almost 30 years ago now, it's that I want to be able to talk about her like she lived, you know, rather than yes. having it be, you know, for, for people who have their mothers alive, I mean, I'm, I'm happy for them and, and different people have um, better or worse relationships with their mothers. Uh, but I feel like when your mother's been 
deceased for so long and you've never introduced her to anyone in your current life it's sort mm-hmm. of like I mean other than your your relatives sure. it's sort of like you know every time I eat cantaloupe or any every time I slice open a cantaloupe I think about my mother and sometimes I just want to say oh cantaloupe that reminds me so much of my mother um, yes there and Many guests I've had talk about how to lace your person who's died into your life. I think it's so important. Um, but since we're talking about mothers, and I and I do want people to get one more little taste of your book, would you read that scene between uh, Iris and her mother, uh, which I think has so much between the lines, <laughs> so many things between the lines. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um So this scene occurs closer to the end of the book uh, where Iris and her mother are actually trying to spend time together while people are gone and and supposedly they're going to have fun. It's been a year since uh, Scott died. They're playing Yahtzee, the Dyson strategy game. Iris's mother had filled her scorecard up with lots of goose eggs, but she'd left her Yahtzee row open. I always have luck with fives, she told Iris. I know I can do this. She'd collected three dice, all fives, and had one more roll. She shook the two dice in the air and flung them across the table with such intensity that Iris was sure one would slip off. And it did. The one on the table landed a five. They stood up, leaning over the table to find the last remaining die. And when Iris spotted it on the floor, the five black dots showing on the face of the die, she grabbed her mother's arm and let out a whoop. Iris's mother beamed a big grin, and Iris was sure she would scream or jump up and down or wave her arms, but slowly her smile started to fade. Her eyes became small, and she sat down on the chair with a thump. I'm not sure it counts, she said. What do you mean? It's a five. But it fell off the table. I'm not sure it counts. Come on, Mom, Iris said. You always used to let us take it if it fell. No matter, her mom said, your turn. And she smiled brightly, that fake smile, which meant she had closed herself off again. I'm so intrigued with Iris's mother because she's just trying to drive the family forward. But meantime, what does she do with that grief herself? (laughs) Yeah. That, That sense of her kind of shutting herself up or in or away is is um, runs through the book, doesn't it? Runs through the story. It it does, and the the ironic thing about that, I think, for me, is that my mother was not like that. Um, my mother was just um, really f- a fun-loving extrovert, very warm, very personable, and. And one of the many reasons that um, I grieve so deeply over her is that we were complete opposites, but we were very, very close. We would have these intense psychological conversations, and um, she was my support person, and I, I struggled with depression, and she was always there for me, always open, willing to talk about anything. I mean, we got in a few, few tiffs in our life, but so few. And um, I don't know why I, I probably couldn't, 
I couldn't make the the person be my mother because mm -hmm. um, because I needed somebody who offered more tension or or um, negativity or or more of a reaction. Um, That's so fascinating because my mother also was very accepting. She was not like Sal, the mother in my story, who rejected her daughter. And part of what I used to think when I started writing it was, how would these big experiences in my life have been um, if I had been in a situation of being rejected by my family? <laughs> that was part of the, the thing I was kind of grappling with. So that's, that's interesting yes. to me. That sounds similar a little bit. Yeah, I think I think it is. We we chose to write um, a different mother character, um, and of course, I've known so many people. Um, some people listening probably know it's about a lesbian daughter whose mom rejects her. I've known so many people for whom that is true. Um, so I thought, you know, it's so painful to think about that. People who were who during AIDS died alone, right? Because their family wouldn't. Uh, yeah, have anything I, to do with them, and that—that's in the back of my head, often. Well, I think get I, support or do we not? I think it is. Um, it is really hard. I think those people um, it, experience incredible pain, and 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 that's one of the reasons I thought that in in your book the the way that um, the character of Chloe accepts Sal back into her life. Um, I like the fact that it has stages. Um, mm. it, it doesn't. Yes, um, for sure. Once. And it's such an odd place to end, but we've run out of time. Thank you so much for reading my book, by the way. Well, <laughs> and thanks welcome. for being with me today. I hope people will go look for your books at dawnmarienewton.com. Next week, I'll have David Richman. After his wife's death, he found solace in writing poetry, which led over time to the creation of a compilation of poetry related to grief. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.